Grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we uh, are in Ephesians chapter 5 today, and we're going to go ahead and read through the first 21 verses, so if you have your Bibles in front of you, or if you want to log on, please do so, and you can follow along as I read. St. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The fruit of life is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The epistle to the Ephesians follows the typical pattern of Paul's letters. Paul generally begins with doctrine at the beginning of his epistles, and then he moves on to practice or to application. Uh, all doctrine, all theology should make a difference in our lives. Otherwise, it's nothing more than an academic exercise. And so you'll see in the opening chapters of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul talks about all the great doctrines. He talks about the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the church. He talks about the doctrine of election, all of these things. But then when you get to where we are today, Paul makes it very clear that all of that has implications for the way we live our lives. And that's why in the verses that precede where we are today, Paul has been talking about putting off the old self and putting on the new self, uh, putting off the works of darkness and putting on us the works of light. And the way we do that, he says, he sums it up here, chapter 5, verse 1, is we are to be imitators of God. And we said that the Greek word that is translated there as imitators is the word mimite, from which we get our word mimic. So basically what Paul is saying is we are to mimic God. Now, we pointed out that in order to mimic God, you've got to spend time with God. The way that people learn how to mimic another individual is you spend time with them. You learn their habits, you learn their little quirks, 
You learn the way they talk, the way they walk, and then you're able to mimic them. Rich Little, uh, you may recall Rich Little was a famous mimic and was able to mimic all kinds of people, and he spent hours and hours and hours uh, watching people on film to see how they did it. And that's what Paul is telling us we are called to do. We are to spend time with God and to learn from Him and to mimic Him. Now, that makes this next verse, verse 3, seem a little strange to us because Paul has been talking about putting off the works of darkness, putting on the works of light. He's talking about loving one another, being tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. He's talking about imitating God. And then all of a sudden, verse 3, Paul begins to talk about the subject that everybody thinks about, nobody wants to talk about, which is sex. <laughs> That's what he does. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What's Paul doing there? Uh, why does Paul seem to be so concerned about this subject? Well, if you were to ask the retired bishop of Newark, New Jersey, Jack Spong, he would say it's because Paul was sexually repressed. Uh, that's what he would say. Or perhaps Paul was uh, a latent homosexual or any number of things. That's what Jack Spong said. That's why Paul seems to be... Oh. You want the pictures, don't you? I was talking about this subject. Uh, all right, well then. I didn't bring any of those pictures today, so I'm just letting you all know. But Jack Spong says that that's, that was the problem for the Paul. That's why Paul was so obsessed with this subject. And there's no doubt about the fact Paul brings up this subject at multiple points in his letters here in the epistle to the Ephesians. He brings it up in his epistle to the Romans. He brings it up writing to the church in Corinth. So you might say, well, that's, that was Paul's problem. I'll be honest with you. I think that has more to do with Jack Spong and his fried over Freud than it does with the Apostle Paul. I think the Apostle Paul mentions this subject because it was an enormous issue in his day. Anybody that knows anything about Greco-Roman culture of the first century realizes this was a huge issue. Sex and human sexuality, it was rampant in the ancient world. Uh, I said that when the temple to the goddess Aphrodite was built in Rome, the funds used to construct what was one of the most magnificent temples in antiquity was built with money raised in the brothels in Rome. The most impressive temple in all of antiquity was the temple dedicated to Aphrodite or Venus, the goddess of love, in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a great port city. It sits on a narrow isthmus between the mainland of Greece to the north and the Peloponnese to the south. It was a major north-south, east-west trade route. It was a sailor's town. And this was a temple dedicated to the goddess of love. And in religious practices in the first century, these pagan practices, they almost always involve some sort of sexual element. In that one temple alone in Corinth, over 1,000 cultic prostitutes plied their trade at just one point in history. So this was, this was typical. It was also true of this church to whom Paul was writing. He was writing to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was a, a great city, an important city. Some of you have been there and you've seen the ruins of, of Ephesus. It's one of the most magnificent places, even today. It's absolutely extraordinary. And one of the great wonders of the ancient world was located there. It was the temple 
of Artemis or Diana. She was the goddess of the hunt. But the images that we have uncovered over the course of the centuries of Artemis or Diana, while we think of her as the goddess of the hunt, you imagine her with a bow and arrow, actually Artemis of the Ephesians was a rather grotesque, multi-breasted figure. So this was part and parcel of life in Paul's world. And so Paul, being the good pastor that he is, does what? He addresses it. He doesn't ignore it. He wants us to understand that if we're going to be serious about the Christian faith, that should have an implication practically in every way we live. And Paul was right to do this because it wasn't just a problem in his day. Sex is a problem in our day too. And so I want us to take a look at this subject today. And I want us to look at it because I think sometimes the church gets a bad rap when it comes to the whole subject of sex. Uh, The assumption is that we're against it. Well, we are against sin, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're against sex. Now, it is true the church over the centuries has from time to time spoken out against certain types of sexual behavior. The Roman Catholic Church in particular has done this, and sometimes I think they've gone a little overboard, to be perfectly honest with you. There have been some of the early church fathers, for example, that even suggested that the way that original sin is transmitted from person to person, generation to generation, is through sexual intercourse. Now, there's no evidence of that anywhere in Scripture, but nevertheless, that's what some people have taught. And as the result, many people in our culture today, as in, the, in the wake of the sexual revolution, where everybody feels as though they've been liberated when it comes to these matters, you know, we're not Victorian anymore, we're not puritanical anymore. It's interesting that the Puritans oftentimes get a bad rap when it comes to sex. If you actually read the Puritans, they talked about it quite a lot. And as far as the Victorians are concerned, they may not have talked about it, but they certainly had it. They were a very prolific generation. (laughs) But the idea is that the church is against this sort of thing. The church is trying to keep people from doing that which comes naturally to them. And that's why I think Paul was right to address it, and I think it's right for us to address it as well. So let's just take a look at this subject today. We said that Paul highlights this issue because it's a perfect example of how we are to be different from the world. Paul's complaint is not that sex is a bad thing. Paul's complaint is that sex is a good thing that unfortunately has been perverted. You know, that's one of the most tragic things is that we human beings are able to take good things things that were intended for our benefit, for our well-being, and we do what with them? We twist them, we distort them, and we turn them into something ugly. And that's exactly what the Bible says has happened when it comes to sex. This is a good thing, but it has been perverted. And I want to walk you through just a few passages from Scripture. So keep your finger there in Ephesians, but go back to the book of Genesis. Back to Genesis. And we're going to start at Genesis chapter 2, then we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds in the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman 
and brought her to the man. The Lord, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And it ends with this passage. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the first thing we see here is that God wanted a helper fit for man. Someone to complement the man. It's interesting to note that, that God, after each successive act of creation, you know, six days of creation, after each successive act of creation, God looks on what he has made and he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. He gets to the end and says, it is very good. Until you get to this passage I just read, and for the first time, God looks on what he has made and he said, this is not good. And what's not good? It is not good for man to be alone. So you need to understand that God created man and God created woman and he created them to be one flesh. Now here's your trivia question for today. What is the first commandment in the Bible? Have sex. That's the first commandment in the Bible. And if you don't believe me, look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we need to understand that human sexuality, sexual relations within the context of marriage, and we'll get to that, this was God's idea. God provided over the very first wedding in history in Eden, and God gave the command that they were to be fruitful and to multiply. So Christians should not be ashamed of this subject. It is the most natural thing in the world. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul, the one who oftentimes gets a, big, a bad rap about all of this, was the one who believed that sex is not only a needful thing in terms of the procreation of the race and, and the spread of, of the good news or the, the nation, but it is also a needful thing. Now turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians for just a moment. It's not hard to find. Romans, Corinthians, and then we get to Ephesians. So if you go to 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. And Paul says this. This is very interesting. He says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. I think it's very interesting that Paul says the husband should give to the wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement and for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, Paul is saying very clearly that this is something that should be done, and it should be done because it is a needful thing. It is a needful thing what? To prevent us from being tempted. This is a natural desire that we have, ladies and gentlemen, in the same way that you have a natural desire for food. There's nothing wrong with those natural desires, provided that we don't take them to an extreme. Paul says this chapter earlier, chapter 6, verse 18, 
He says this, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So Paul is saying that this is a problem because it is not just a sin when we fail to have sex within its proper context. He says that it is a problem also because it does what? It is a sin against our own body. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But you can see over and over again, Paul makes this very clear. He goes on to say that a man and a woman become one flesh. This, by the way, is exactly what we say in the marriage service. The last part of, the, of this page says this. Dearly, well, I'll read the whole thing to you because it's, you're familiar with it. Whenever time we have a wedding, the couple comes up, the priest stands at the front, and the officiant says these words, Dearly beloved, we have to come together in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation. We saw that. The two shall become one. And our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by His presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It signifies to us the mystery of the union between Christ and His church, and Holy Scripture commends it to be honored among all people. The union of husband and wife. Now here it comes. In heart and body and mind. Not just heart, not just mind, but heart, body, and mind is intended what? By God, now here it comes, for their mutual joy. For the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity. And when it is God's will for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. Therefore, marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance with the purposes for which it was instituted by God. The purposes for which it was instituted by God were what? According to the marriage office. For their mutual joy for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity, and when it is God's will for the procreation of children. So the procreation of children is certainly a part of that, but the sexual, the union of body, is also a unitive element. It's designed for our encouragement, for our strength. If you think about it, there is probably no act that is more intimate that we do as Christians than worship. And there's no act of worship that is more intimate than what we call Holy Communion. We become one flesh with Christ. Isn't that what we say? We say that every Sunday, that He may dwell in us and we in Him. There is no more intimate act that a man or a woman can engage in. It doesn't matter what it is. You can sit down and talk all night long. And that's important, believe me. My wife reminds me that it's important that I listen for a change. Well, what Paul is saying is that there's nothing more intimate that we can engage in than a sexual relation. And God is the one who invented this. And for a very good purpose. So it's not something that we should be ashamed of. But, Paul says, as with all things, we have a tendency to take it and twist it and ruin it. And that's really what he's talking about here now if you go back to Ephesians. He says, but sexual immorality and impurity or covetous must not be named among you. Uh, the word that Paul uses for sexual immorality is an interesting word. It is the Greek word porneia, from which we get our term pornography. 
That's where it comes from. The Greek porneia means sexual immorality. But in this case, it has very little to do with obscene pictures or dirty magazines or films. Here, the word is generally translated in the New Testament as fornication. That is to say, sex outside the context of marriage. So Paul says that is not to be seen among us. Now, of course, that is what we see all around us in the world today. Everywhere we turn, we see fornication, and it is glamorized. People are having this sort of thing all the time. They have multiple partners, and this is not unusual at all. But Paul, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, says that all sins are outside the body except for sexual sins. Why is that a sin against the body? And why is that so grievous? Paul says it's grievous because we are not only sinning against another person and violating God's laws, but because if we are Christians, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. God has taken up residence in us. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. To do that which is contrary to God's word is to defile His temple. Now, how would you feel if somebody came in and defiled St. Philip's church? Would you be appalled by that? If they did something grotesque, or left something behind in there that was, was nasty, would you be offended by that? Of course we would, because we said that is God's house. Well, Paul says, your temple, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, has taken up residence within you. So to do something that is contrary to God's will is not simply to sin. It is to sin against your body. It is to sin against the Spirit. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that sexual sins are the worst. There are all kinds of spiritual sins that, quite frankly, are more dangerous than those sins against the body. But what Paul is saying is that sexual sins are the most destructive to society as a whole. They are the most destructive to society as a whole. I'm going to read you a quote from David Blankenhorn. He's a social commentator. Perhaps you've heard of him. Some years ago, back in the 1990s, he wrote a book called Fatherless America. And what is interesting is that this whole issue of a fatherless America, children growing up without the advantage of a father, has, is a theme that has been taken up by the Democrats and the Republicans alike. Now, president Obama made this a big part of his agenda when he was president of the United States. And Republicans have done the same thing. And I think that that's reasonable. Because this is not a Republican problem, this is not a Democratic problem, this is not a problem for black people or white people, for the wealthy or for the poor. John Kenneth Galbraith once said, under communism, man exploits man. And under capitalism, the situation is just the reverse. <laughs> Delayed reaction. Yeah, you get that? What he was saying is that these are problems for all people. And here's what David Blankenhorn said. He said, the most important domestic challenge, now you think about this, the most important domestic challenge, all the domestic challenges we have, the wall and uh, immigration, all that sort of thing, he says, the most important domestic challenge facing the United States at the dawn of the 21st century is the recreation of fatherhood as a vital social rule for men. At stake is nothing less than the success of the American experiment. For unless we reverse the trend of fatherlessness, no other set of accomplishments, not economic growth or prison construction or welfare reform or better schools will succeed in arresting the decline of child well-being 
and the spread of male violence. To tolerate the trend of fatherlessness is to accept the inevitability of continued social recession. Children have a primal need, that is, it's hardwired within us, a primal need to know who they are, to love and be loved by the two people whose physical union brought them here. To lose that connection, that sense of identity, is to experience a wound that no child support, check, or fancy school can ever heal. Well, you see, that is what happens in our culture, you see. If we can have, simply have recreational sex, oftentimes, you know, we have all this birth control and so forth, but oftentimes children are born, children come into the world, and they're fatherless, and they have no role models. That's what Paul's been talking about. We are to mimic what? God our Father. Well, young boys need examples that they can mimic as well. And this is just one example of how sexual sins are destructive to society. Second thing is this, sexual sins fail to achieve God's purpose in marriage. God invented marriage and he invented it for a purpose, for their mutual joy, for help and comfort, given one another in adversity and prosperity, and when it is God's will, what? For the procreation of children and their nurture and the knowledge and love of the Lord. That is why marriage was created. But if we are doing it contrary to God's will, then it will never achieve its purpose, will it? It will never accomplish that which God intended for it. I quoted from Mary Everstadt last week. I want to come back to her again. She's remarkable. If you've never purchased her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, I encourage you to do it. And here's what she said. She said, just about everyone alive today, with the possible exception of those readers who entered a Trappist monastery the second they reached the age of reason, and have been living in a cell without windows or the internet ever since, is implicated one way or another in the sexual revolution. Every family in America by now has been shaped by one or more of its facets. Divorce, single parenthood, abortion, cohabitation, widespread pornography. This fact that we're all in this together also gives people a powerful reason to deny the true cause. After all, who wants to give offense? Who wants one's divorced brother or cousin or remarried father to get hurt? The answer is no one, of course, and the desire not to hurt people who are openly living in the liberationist creed is yet another reason for the denial. Yet, as the rest of the story presented here has gone on to show, there is far more to the legacy of the sexual revolution than is commonly understood. The star athlete with a stable of girls at his sexual command the young woman whose sexual attractiveness helps with one rung or another of the corporate ladder, the childless CEO with a rich social life who's been catapulted through the glass ceiling because she is unencumbered by family, the well-off childless couple who vacation in the Galapagos and the Himalayas instead of Yellowstone or the local campsite. These are indeed some of the faces of the sexual revolution's children. And as snapshots, they look very happy indeed. But there are other faces too. And they have stories of their own. They include the young woman on campus and elsewhere exploited by men whose expectations have been warped by the revolution's false promises. They are the older woman who bought the revolution's rhetoric of sexual equality only to find too late that marriage and motherhood won't be there for her. The men caught in one or another of the back room at the revolution's wild party who discovered also too late that he couldn't get back home again after all. 
And there remain the children who have faced and continue to face all manner of higher risks in their lives because the sexual revolution helped to disrupt their lives or to empower adults with sinister designs on them. These unseen victims of what may yet turn out to be the grandest and least understood human experiment of our time, they are also part of the consequences of the sexual revolution. Paul wants us to understand that sex is a good thing. It was created by God. It's intended for the well-being of society. But when it is done in a way that is contrary to what God intended, it is destructive to society and it fails to achieve the purposes for which God intended it. Paul goes on to say this, though. He says not only sexual immorality should not be among us, he mentions the word impurity as well. Uh, the Greek word here is akarthasia, and it literally means unclean. What Paul means here is not just sex outside of marriage, he means all deviant forms of sexual relations which were common in the Greco-Roman world. Now we could go into this, we really don't have the time to go into it in greater detail, but you can look at the passages yourself, Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through, through 24 through 26, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. I will say this much, Paul is concerned with behavior, activity, not proclivity. So Paul is not talking about a person's tendencies or temptations, Paul is talking about their activity. But he said this cannot be seen among us. He goes on to say filthiness, the word filthiness there is the word from which we get our term obscenity or obscene. What is this? This is indecent or improper behavior, but what it really is is a rejection of all moral standards. If there was a poster child for what I would call filthiness, obscenity, in our world, it was Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner rejected all moral standards whatsoever. And he believed that the best thing you could do, he was a modern hedonist, if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, avoid it. And Paul is saying that cannot be seen among us. He goes on to say this, there should be no crude joking. You know, if you think about it, crude joking is the lowest form of humor. It's what my wife calls potty humor. Now you see all of this, the fornication, the impurity, the obscenity, the crude joking, these are characteristics of what? Our culture. This is what we see everywhere we turn in our day and age. And Paul's concern is that these have a tendency to undermine the very fabric of society. First of all, they destroy the family. And you're going to notice that he goes on in the next part of this, the next chapter, chapter 6, to deal with children and parents. Why does one flow to the other? Because, look, folks, family is foundational to every society. It's in families that the first education takes place. It's in families that the first health care takes place. When families are undermined, whole societies begin to crumble as a consequence. So that is Paul's ultimate concern here. His concern is for the well-being of society. Sex is not a bad thing, but it cannot be distorted because when it does, it fails to achieve its purpose and it destroys the very fabric of a society. Paul goes on to mention two other vices. He said there should not be covetousness. What is covetousness? Greed. 
Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 said, You cannot serve God and money. Paul calls this person an idolater. Why? Because if it's not the love of money for money's sake, it's the love of money for what money can do for us. It's what money can do for us in terms of liberating us and allowing us to be whatever we want, to do whatever we want. Jesus, on another occasion in Matthew chapter 19, said it is easier, listen to this, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Because rich people do not feel their need for God. Whatever they need, they have the ability to get it themselves. They, they are not dependent on God. But a poor person has no excuse but, or, or no choice but to what? Be dependent on God. Now, that's not to say that money is necessarily a bad thing. If you read through the Bible, you'll discover, particularly in the Old Testament, some of the greatest heroes of the faith were moneyed and propertyed individuals. Abraham was wealthy. David was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy beyond measure. But the question is not, do we own possessions? The question is, do our possessions own us? And oftentimes that is the case in our culture, isn't it? The thing that we worry about most is the loss of money. We are obsessed over it. Paul said this too should not be a part of who we are. He said foolish talk should not be prevalent within the Christian community. Uh, the word for foolish talk is an interesting word too. You, you know it well. Morologia, from which we get our term moron. Moron and logia, logos is word. Foolish talk. That's where Paul gets it. Now when Paul talks about foolish talk, he's not, not talking about intelligence. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, not many of you were wise, not many of you were educated by the world's standards. That's not what he's talking about. What Paul is talking about is that kind of talk which is designed to tear down all that is noble. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, think on these things. Think on these things, on that which is noble, which is lovely, which is pure. Now, let's just go back and quickly review. I'm trying to get through a whole lot of information here quickly. What Paul is saying is that God created these things good. God created us as sexual beings, and He intended the sex to be something that builds up, not tears down, something that strengthens the fabric of society, not undermines it. So He says, do it within its proper context, the way God intended. Otherwise, it never achieves its goal. When He says, no crude joking, it's not as though God does not have a sense of humor. The God who made monkeys clearly has a sense of humor. That's not the problem. But what do we do? We take humor, which is a good thing, a blessing from God, and we distort it and we turn it into something nasty and crude. We take these good things and we ruin them. And the reason why Paul emphasizes it, as I said, it was a problem in his day. And let me tell you, it is a problem in our day. Just take a look at television. shows The Bachelor. They came out with a sequel, The Bachelorette. Notice how Bachelorette is to find a husband. Note the tagline for the show, let's do the damn thing. Reality TV is like keeping up with the Kardashians. Why would you want to? 
desperate housewives. And then you get the real housewives. <laughs> this is television, folks. This is what is trumpeted. This is what is displayed in our world. And you have to ask yourself, what does that do to a society? It destroys it. It brings it down. And that is Paul's ultimate concern here. Paul's ultimate concern here is not to be a party pooper. Paul's intention here is not to be a downer. Paul's intention is to flag those problems that are prevalent in society that should not be evident in the Christian life. And unfortunately, unfortunately, the problem in our day is that sometimes Christians don't live any differently than the people that you see up on the screen. And that's Paul's ultimate concern. There was a uh, poll that came out just a few years ago, a Gallup poll, and they determined that evangelical Christians, evangelical Christians, now, you know, those, those are the conservative folks, evangelical Christians were the most worldly people in America today. They said, what do you mean they're worldly? What they meant by that is they live just like everybody else. You can't even tell, aside from the fact that perhaps they go to church on Sunday and say that they were born again. Aside from that, you can't tell that they live any differently than anybody else. Are you aware of the fact that 50% of all marriages in America today end in divorce? And are you aware of the fact that all Christian marriages in America today, 50% end in divorce? Which is to say, we're, we're not really any better than what? Than the rest of the world. And if we're no different than the rest of the world, what hope is there for the rest of the world? That's Paul's question. And that's why he goes on to say, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It's interesting to note Paul says you were darkness. He doesn't say you were in the darkness. He said, but now you are light. He doesn't say you are now in the light. He says you were darkness now you are light. What is the purpose of light? It is exposed. It does expose, but it does something else. When you're at Canuga and it's nighttime, what do you take with you? Why do you need the flashlight? To illuminate. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying if this is the world and the world is in darkness, then you and I are to be children of light, which is to say we are to illuminate these things, show people what it's really all about, show people the value of these things and how God intended and how they can be used as a blessing rather than as a curse. How do we walk as children of the light? Paul says this. He said, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. This is how the world walks. Paul says, if you're going to be a child of the light, you walk in thanks. Thanks for what? Well, for all the obvious things. For life, for health, for family, for God, for Christ, for the church. These are all blessings. But also we are to give thanks, I think, in light of what he's already said up here. We are to give thanks for those good things that the world would seek to ruin and distort. In particular, I think, we should give thanks for sex. 
It is a blessing in its proper context. This is one of the best books. It came out years ago, back in the 80s, but it's one of the best books on this subject, and I encourage you to buy it and read it. It's by Mike Mason. The book was in, he's a Canadian. The book was entitled The Mystery of Marriage as Iron Sharpens Iron. And here's what he said about the Christian view of marriage and human sexuality. He said, what can equal the surprise of finding out that the one thing above all others which mankind has been most proficient in dragging through the dirt turns out, in fact, to be the most innocent thing in the world? Is there any other activity at all which an adult man or woman can engage in together, apart from worship, that is actually more childlike, more clean, more natural, wholesome, and unequivocally right than is the act of making love. For if worship is the deepest available form of communion with God, then surely sex is the deepest communion that is possible between human beings, and as such is something absolutely essential in more than a biological way to our survival. See, the challenge for us as Christians, my friends, is not to steer away from these subjects because we're embarrassed by them. The challenge for us is not to turn a blind eye to the problems of the world. These things were a blessing from the Lord, and they are intended to build up. And as children of the light, and that's what we're called to do, we were once darkness, not just in the darkness, we were darkness, which is to say we contributed to the problem. But now, having been illuminated ourselves, we can be light in the world. We, we need to strengthen marriages, encourage marriages. Now, that's not to say if you've been through a divorce, you're a terrible person. All sins aren't forgivable. We live in a broken world. I would say that sometimes divorce is unfortunately inevitable. But have you ever heard of such a thing as no-fault divorce? There's no such thing as no-fault divorce. That's like saying there's no-fault sin. <laughs> and as the community of faith, it is our responsibility to do what? To encourage people, to help people, to strengthen people. Have you ever noticed in the wedding that there comes a point where the priest says to the congregation, will you who witness these vows do all in your power to support these two people in their marriage? We're going to say something very similar to it in the baptism today. Will all you who witness these vows do everything in your power to support these persons in their life in Christ? And you are going to say what? Will. I will. Are you going to remember the child a week from now? When there's a baptism, do we remember them a week from now? But you just made a promise before God and a company of witnesses that you will do everything in your power to support this child in his life in Christ. The same thing should be true for marriages. We have to do everything we can. Marriage is tough. I will say this much about marriage, though. There is no relationship that can be more sanctifying. That is to say, that can shape you and mold you more into the image of Christ than a marriage can. Because it is about mutual sacrifice, isn't it? A man gives up a great deal for his wife. A wife is to give up a great deal for her husband. Paul says this. We're going to get to it eventually in Ephesians. He says, women, obey your husbands in the Lord. Women, obey your husbands, he says, in all things. But then he goes on to say, women or men, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. 
See, if you look at the biblical picture of marriage, if you look at the biblical picture of sex, if you look at the biblical picture of family, what you see is something that is magnificent and it's bigger than itself. It is a picture of God's relationship to His church. It is a picture of the kingdom of God in a broken and fallen world. But if the Christians are living no different than the world, then what has happened to the light? The light has been extinguished. And that's Paul's concern in this passage. He was concerned with it in the world of the Ephesians because it was a problem in their day. And it's a problem in our day as well. Paul says, don't be like that. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for all the good things which you shower upon us. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, down from the Father of lights. And we are aware, Father, that we have a tendency to take those good gifts that you have given us and distort them and turn them into something ugly. Grant us the grace, especially as Christian people, not to be like that. We were once in darkness, but now we are light. Grant us the grace to make the sacrifices that are necessary to live according to your law, that we may be an example to those around us, that we may be engaged in that which is not ignoble but noble. Help us to be a people who build up rather than to tear down. Help people to see in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, something that is different from what they see in the world. And in coming to know that, they may come to know us. And in coming to know us, they may come to know the one who is life everlasting. Grant this, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.